Have you tried changing your health year on year, resolving that this year things are going to be different, but nothing seems to change? Oftentimes, when things are not changing, we are following many wellness myths and not looking at the full picture, including our nutrition, recovery, stress management, leaving out mind-body connection. I want to introduce you to Wellness Redefined, a new podcast from Refillion Media that's here to dispel all your myths about wellness and fitness while sharing stories of how we redefine what it means to be healthy. On each episode, we'll be talking to experts from all walks of life who will share their own unique wellness journey and offer their perspective. I am your host, Tamika Rochester, founder and CEO of Harlem Cycle, a premier wellness space in New York City with a focus on indoor cycling. I've been an advocate for wellness since as early as I can remember. So if this sounds like something that could help change your life, go ahead and pause the show you're listening to and subscribe to Wellness Redefined on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Invisible Heat. I am Sahadiya Khan. And I'm Asad Bhatt. And our story today takes us to El Paso, Texas in August of 2019. A woman crawls across the floor of the first convenience bank stationed at the front of a large Walmart in El Paso. Gunshots echo through the store in rapid succession. Left and right, shoppers fall to the floor, injured. The woman reaches the bank's vault room where she and four other terrified workers seek refuge. They sit huddled together, hand in hand. Outside, the battle rages on. And then, silence. Minutes later, the police arrive at the vault to usher the five workers to safety. When the door finally opens, the woman emerges to find herself standing in what can only be described as a post-apocalyptic Walmart. The store sits clouded by a haze of gun smoke. Across the floor, dozens of individuals lay injured, their clothes soaked through with blood. The woman covers her eyes, blocking out the horrific sight wishing it would all just go away. But the images are forever burned into her brain. This is Invisible Heat. Welcome to Invisible Heat, a weekly true crime podcast in which Asad and I attempt to uncover the ugly truth behind various hate crimes, both recent and historical. Yeah, that's right, Sadia. Many of the cases that we discuss involve crimes committed against minority groups. Our goal is to determine through a discussion of the nuances and the complexities of these situations whether or not these transgressions can be considered a hate crime. Um, today's case, Sadia, certainly seems to fit that mold of a hate crime, but you know, I, I don't think we should get ahead of ourselves. For now, maybe let's just start with the details of the case. Um, before we get started, I'd like to warn listeners that this case can be very unsettling to hear about. And while many of the cases we discuss here on Invisible Hate are quite challenging to listen to, mass casualty events, such as this one that we're going to be discussing today, can be particularly disturbing. So please be aware of that before going in. All right, Sadia, do you want to get started? Yes. It's around 10 a.m. on the morning of August 3rd, 2019, 21-year-old Patrick Crucius arrives in El Paso, Texas. 
He's been driving for over 11 hours, making the trip from his home in the Dallas suburb of Allen, Texas. Crucius pulls into a Walmart parking lot. At 10.15 a.m., he posts a four-page manifesto on the anonymous message board 8chan. The manifesto contains 2,300 words of anonymous anti-immigrant rhetoric. These words will eventually be traced back to Crucius. Just before 10.30, Crucius gets out of the car and enters the Walmart. The store bustles with back-to-school shoppers. Crucius walks amongst them, just another customer. But as families search for backpacks and pencil cases, Crucius' search is of a different kind. He's casing the store. He looks for security guards, police officers, law enforcement of any kind. He wants to know how protected is this store. Well, it seems not protected enough. Crucius exits the store. He soon returns and this time he doesn't come empty-handed. In his hands, he carries a semi-automatic fucking AK-47. Approaching the store for the second time, he spots a girls' soccer team gathered outside in the midst of a fundraiser. And then he raises his gun and starts shooting. He takes several shots at the team, striking multiple parents before entering the store. Tragically, one parent does not survive the attack, but thankfully, the girls walk away uninjured. In a broadcast interview with the son's surviving parent, Maribel Lacton explains, We all threw ourselves on the floor. We had nowhere to run. There was nowhere, no way we could have ran out of there. He shot eight more rounds, and all I could say is, God, please take care of my children, and please don't let them do anything to my daughter or any of the girls in our team. Inside, Crucius continues his violent rampage. The store erupts into chaos as customers run left and right, ducking for cover. Many customers hide, some manage to escape, many do not. But in the midst of such heartless, violent horror lie several stories of heroism and selfless sacrifice. One grandfather acts as a shield protecting his wife and granddaughter from gunfire as they run for safety. He protects them for as long as he can before he's fatally shot. Another man steps between Crucius and his wife and child. After the man is shot, his wife shields their two-month-old son from gunfire, sacrificing her body to the bullets for the sake of her child. Crucius shoots her and she falls onto the child, but baby Paul has yet another savior. Several feet away, a man spots the baby laying across the woman's chest, streaked in blood. Wasting no time, the man runs in, scoops up baby Paul and carries him to safety. A few of his fingers are broken and he has been grazed by a bullet, but he is otherwise okay. Sadly, all this is so unreal. Like, uh, It's just really hard to imagine a scene like this, right? And you see it in the movies and, and whatnot and... It's hard to 
envision someone targeting people like this in real life. You're absolutely right, Asad. And imagine this is happening in America more than the number of days in a year. Just imagine, Asad, it's like happening all the time. Going back to the case, at 10.45 a.m., six minutes, only six minutes after the first 911 call, the police arrive at the scene. The gunfire stops and Crucius flees the store. So this carnage, Asad, has happened in just six minutes. Especially with the weapon, uh, you know, whatever it was, the AK-47, which I think is a pretty deadly weapon. Yeah, so much carnage can happen in just in six minutes. It's, it's wild. You're right, Asad. And this is military-grade weapon, hmm. right? Yeah. Anyways, he quickly jumps in his car and drives away. He doesn't make it very far, though. Shortly after leaving the store, he is stopped at the intersection by a police officer. He immediately surrenders to El Paso authorities, willingly identify himself as a shooter. So no remorse, Asad. He yeah. is okay with identifying himself as a shooter. He admits it. He owns it. And according to an arrest warrant, Crucius admits to police that he had been targeting Mexicans. Mm, there it is. Yeah. This is why he had driven all the way to El Paso, a city on the border of Mexico with a Hispanic population of over 80%. Oh, wow. So let, let's just recap. So this guy, he drives to El Paso, whatever it was, 10, 11 hours away. He scopes out the Walmart, goes in, checks out to see if you know there are any security people, then goes out, grabs his weapons, and just comes in blazing. But this is you know after he posts this whatever screed, you know, online to 8chan. And then we come to find out that he admits to police that he's targeting Mexicans, which is just, you know, such a coward. And yeah, I, I don't even know what to say. Exactly. I said, truly, truly awful. Now back at the Walmart, fellow victims and emergency responders alike attend to the wounded. El Paso Fire Department paramedics push victims out of the store or on aluminum platform carts, they bring them to safety and immediately begin assessing and treating their wounds. While some are able to make a full recovery, which is great, for many it's tragically too late. Crucius leaves 23 oh, people wow. dead and 22 others injured. Can you imagine, Asad? I mean, I remember this story, you know, when it took place and to your point, you know, it seems like this kind of stuff happens every day and you hear, you know, five people here, 10 people there, you know, 23 people and then another 22 injured all in a matter of six minutes. Like, Sadi, it's just, <laughs> I mean, it's just unfathomable. And what I've always find interesting is that the response by police and paramedics and, you know, the fact that they were able to get there so quickly. And, you know, because of that, because we have these systems in place that, you know, pe people probably did survive because of those systems. But it's also, you know, on the flip side, these paramedics have probably seen this kind of stuff a lot, gunshot wounds, right? And so, like, it's odd that they've seen it so much that they know how to treat, <laughs> you know, injuries like this. That's such an important point, Asad. You're absolutely right. I sometimes feel like Yes, the paramedics know how to treat victims, but the general population in America has become so desensitized oh, to this notion of yeah. shooting that it happens almost every day and nobody cares as much as it. That's what 
really breaks my heart. Right. Totally. And so how did El Paso respond? Like, how did people in the community respond to what happened? So I said, not surprisingly, the community of El Paso was utterly devastated. According to the New York Times, the city had historically been a very safe place and had never experienced anything remotely like this. People were absolutely shocked. Residents were angry that an outsider had come into their peaceful community to inflict harm on their family and friends merely because they were Hispanic. Yeah. Imagine, I said, this is quintessential hate crime playbook. Right, right. Many of those living in El Paso have parents who, by the way, were born in Mexico and the city takes pride in its deep tradition of racial harmony and its strong relationships with the neighboring Mexican city of Juarez. Individuals pass between the two cities frequently and with ease. Yeah, that's that's my impression of El Paso is that it's a, you know, it's a border town, but like it's there's yeah a lot of back and forth and a lot of commerce and those cities are, you know, interconnected. And so that's really interesting. Exactly, Asad. And this was, by the way, the deadliest anti-Latino attack in modern U.S. history. Oh, my goodness. Yep. Wow. I, I did not hear that before. And so that's really fascinating. Yeah. And Asad, people hold vigils and prayer services for deceased victims. Many politicians address the shooting, offering their condolences to family and victims. Now, I'm pretty sure you remember, Asad, that the Democratic Texas representative, Beto O'Rourke was very vocal about this shooting in a statement broadcast by CBS News right after the incident. He says, There's a lot of injury, a lot of suffering uh, in El Paso right now. I am um, incredibly saddened, and it is very hard to think about this. Um, <clears throat> uh, but I'll tell you, um, El Paso is the strongest place in the world. Um, this community is going to come together. Uh, I'm going back there right now um, to be with my family and to be with my hometown. Basically, he places the tragedy at the center of his campaign for the 2020 yeah, presidential election. I remember it too. Asad. He really leaned into it quite a bit. Yeah, exactly. Now he comes to El Paso two days after the shooting to speak at a vigil for one of the young victims. President Trump, by the way, too, makes his way to El Paso on August 7th after pledging federal government support. However, according to the El Paso Times, many residents protest the president's arrival due to his dangerous, dangerous history of racist, anti-immigrant rhetoric. Now, many feel that he has created a climate that encourages attacks such as the one they have just experienced. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any doubt Trump is anti-immigrant, anti-Mexicans. you know Mexicans. You know, I think that clearly he has some role in instigating things like this that have happened throughout the country, in my opinion. So, Sally, let's take a quick break right now. And when we come back, we'll discuss the victims and the perpetrator a little bit more in depth. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu visit. 
Welcome back to Invisible Hate. So, Sadia, we're talking about this El Paso shooting. 23 people died. Can you tell us a little bit more about the victims? Absolutely, Asad. 23 unique individuals, each with their own personal backstories. What they had in common, many of them were Hispanic, and all of them had the misfortune of being at the El Paso Walmart on that fateful day. Now, 63-year-old veteran and contractor David Johnson died protecting his family, 59-year-old army veteran and public transit bus driver Thoro Benavides was at the self-checkout line when the horror began. Juarez-based pastor Juan de Dios Velasquez would never preach again. Husband and father Guillermo Garcia passed away nearly nine months after the shooting, unable to recover Mm. from his injuries. Perhaps one of the most devastating losses was the death of 15-year-old Javier Amir Rodriguez, the youngest victim of the shooting. He and the rest of Javier's family were devastated to learn that the young boy had not survived the attack. Clearly, so many victims, young and old, and just going about their business. Everybody's been in a Walmart. They can be so busy. And again, like six minutes, so much death and loss. And someone that's 15 years old that was there, I think he was like shopping for school supplies. You know, he's like a sophomore, just... It's really heartbreaking, and I can't even imagine what the family is going through. And, you know, it's how they makes you think each and every one of these victims, you know, they had family, co-worker, friends. And it's just like I can only imagine tracking the impact of this. It's probably, you know, likely that everybody in El Paso knew someone, you know, that was impacted by this event. Asit, doesn't it make you think what place is safe in the U.S.? <laughs> right, yeah. I think it's it's something that, you know, when you leave your house— you just don't know what's what's going to happen and where you can go to be safe. And that's the reality of living in a, in a society where people with guns have more rights than people without them. Exactly. So anyways, the ripple effects of these types of tragedies are sadly so large. And you and I have talked about this on previous episodes as well. And to make matters worse, the damage of this violent tragedy goes far beyond the city of El Paso, right? According to Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, a total of eight Mexican nationals were killed in Walmart that day. Many of them had crossed the border into Texas to shop at the fucking Walmart. Yeah, you know, this is again news to me. Like, obviously, we discussed that people go back and forth pretty regularly, but I didn't know that eight of the 23 victims were Mexican. Yeah, an international shooting is just, it's its wild. Okay, so Sadia, what do we know about the guy who committed this act, uh, Patrick Crucius? So Asad, Patrick Crucius is a young white Texan who was 21 years old when he committed this horrific crime. According to the website Counter Extremism Project, He grew up in an upper-middle-class home in Allen, Texas. According to USA Today, Crucius graduated from Plano Senior High School in 2017 and enrolled in Collin College the following fall. He had still been attending the two-year college the spring before 
the shooting. At the time of his violent attack, Crucius had also been unemployed and had just moved out of his grandparents' house. And as we previously mentioned, just minutes before the attack, the young Texan had posted a four-page manifesto on the anonymous message board 8chan. Within these pages, he had espoused anti-immigrant rhetoric and conspiracy theories, which I am not surprised at all, Asad. Yeah, I mean, I feel like, you know, <laughs> manifestos, I feel like, are just now synonymous with anti-immigrant and racist and conspiracy theories, right? I feel like this is a, a playbook for whatever reason for, for these type of people. Exactly, Asad. There is a lot by the way, to unpack within this manifesto, this document contains some really extreme ideas that may help provide insight into Crucius's mindset and thought process before the shooting. In other words, his justification for his violent actions. And given that, Asad, we have decided to create a part two to this episode in which we'll be dedicating much of our time to a discussion of this manifesto. Yeah. So listeners, be sure to tune in next week for this fascinating yet deeply troubling analysis. In the meantime, we are going to take another quick break. But when we return, we'll be discussing the investigation and trials following the shooting. Welcome back to Invisible Hate. So, Sadia, what happens to Crucius after he's taken into police custody? Great question, Asad. So, it's August 3rd, 2019, and Crucius has just been taken into police custody after shooting at Walmart. Police immediately bring Crucius in for questioning. He confesses to investigators that he had planned the attack and intentionally made the long drive to the border city of El Paso to carry out his plan. His intention? To target Mexicans. Investigators then discover the four-page manifesto released just prior to the attack and seek to determine whether or not Crucius is the author. That's an interesting thing, Asad. How would you determine that? My guess is that there's, you know, digital fingerprints, you know, involved. And so, you know, whenever you save a document, your computer logs it somewhere. And I think most people don't know how to erase that log or you know, that kind of stuff. So I think it's, it's it's things like that. You're right, Asad. All further investigation is, by the way, led by the state of Texas with assistance from the FBI, the El Paso Police Department, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives and others. Ultimately, the evidence appears to be stacked against Crucius. In September of 2019, a local grand jury in El Paso indicts him on capital murder charges, for which they intend to seek the death penalty. A month later, he pleads not guilty in state court. I don't understand how can he plead not guilty, Asad. This is so mind-boggling. This is like standard procedure, you plead not guilty, because otherwise you have no agency in, in the outcome of what's going to happen. So now he can negotiate, you know, for a guilty plea and take, you know, death penalty or other things off the table. So, yeah. Yeah, you're right. In February of 2020, he is then indicted with over 90 charges by a federal grand jury. Keep in mind that the federal case is separate from the state case. 
Now, these charges include 45 counts of violating the Matthew Shepard and James Bird Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act and 45 counts of using a firearm for crimes of violence. For those listeners who are joining us for the first time, we've covered both these cases of Matthew Shepard and James Bird, so you can go back and listen to our episodes about hate crimes perpetrated against them. So, Sadia, what is the Matthew Shepard and James Bird Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act for those that haven't been listening to our podcast? So, I said, according to the Department of Justice, passed in 2009, this act essentially makes it a federal crime to willfully cause bodily injury or attempt to do so because of an individual's actual or perceived race, color, religion, national origin, gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, or disability. In other words, Crucius is being charged with committing several hate crimes. He appears in federal court on February 12, 2020, entering a not guilty plea. However, once Crucius learns that the government will not be seeking the death penalty in its case against him, he quickly changes his plea. I said, this is a mindfuck. I don't really understand how people can go back and forth and there is no law against it. Like, what the hell is this? Anyways, in February of 2023, he pleads guilty to all charges as part of a plea agreement. On July 5th and 6th, Crucius enters the courtroom with shackled hands and feet. He then sits in silence as 36 survivors and family members of deceased victims address him. According to CNN, a young survivor wearing an El Paso strong shirt tells him, and I quote, I used to be a happy, normal teenager until a coward chose to use violence against the innocent. I'm no longer as happy as I used to be, unquote. I said, this breaks my heart. Yeah, it's very powerful. A teenager soccer player then says, and I quote, I still remember everything so clearly, even though I have tried to erase it from my memory, unquote. Outside the courtroom, ABC News interviews Paul Jamroski, a man who lost both his daughter and son-in-law to the shooting. Here's him talking about the incident. It's hard. It's very, very hard. I mean, you sit there and you think, man, if you, if you didn't do what you did, I'd have my child, you know, at home. Yeah, Sally, that's so heartbreaking and, you know, right on. Like, you know, he'll never be able to hug them again. And it's so heartbreaking to hear the pain in his voice and the pain of losing a child is just unfathomable to me. You know, Sally, I think it's really important that victims are able to address the court in this way and share the impact of the crime. And, you know, these definitely produce some very powerful moments. You're absolutely right, Asad. These testimonies go on for two days, providing individuals with the opportunity to face the man that has caused them so much pain. Then finally, on July 7th, Crucius is officially sentenced to 90 consecutive 
life terms. One life sentence for each charge. Wow. Asad, does that mean he's never coming out? Yeah, I, there's no way that he'll ever be let out. Yeah, 90 consecutive life sentences, yeah. So this final hearing lasts about 40 minutes. Crucius' defense lawyer, Joe Spencer, tells the court that his client takes full responsibility for the harm he has caused. He then attributes the rampage to severe mental illness. I said, I was waiting for this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, whether it's real or an excuse, you know, this is typically where these things go. Crucius will spend the rest of his days in a maximum security prison paying for his violent actions. And I'm so glad that he will. However, Crucius continues to plead not guilty in the state case in an attempt to avoid the death penalty. According to the New York Times, he and his lawyer argue that at the time of the shooting, he was suffering from severe neurological disabilities and was in a psychotic hmm. state. I don't think that we're in a position to determine what his state was or is. And, you know, I think that if, if that's what they're claiming, he should be tested and there should be evidence that is brought forth, you know, about his mental state at the time or before that. You know, I don't want to discount it, but what we just said as well, like, it seems like after the fact, a lot of these perpetrators end up claiming mental illness when maybe, in fact, that, that wasn't the case. Yeah, you're right. It is unclear when he might face trial on these state charges, but El Paso District Attorney Bill Hicks anticipates that this may not happen until 2024 or 2025, I said. Okay, yeah. I it's still ongoing, okay. In the meantime, he will be serving his time in prison, which is great. All right, we are now going to stop here for now, but the story isn't over yet. Next week, we'll be doing a part two on the El Paso Walmart shooting. We'll also be doing a deep dive on Crucius's manifesto. This will help inform our discussion on whether or not we can consider this act a hate crime. So listeners, make sure to check out next week's episode for that particular discussion. Thanks so much for listening to Invisible Heat. If you want to learn more, check out links in the show notes about the case. Please email us your thoughts on this story or any other story that you think we should cover. You can reach us at info at invisibleheatpodcast.com. You can also tweet us or hit us up on Instagram. Just search for Invisible Hate Podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this with a friend. Invisible Hate is a joint production of Rafaelion Media and Immigrantly. We'd like to thank our team, which includes Michaela Strather, Emmanuel Monahan, and Paroma Chakravarti. Our music was done by Simon Hutchinson. And yeah, like always, we'll be back next week with another hate crime for us to analyze. Until next time, I'm Asad Butt. And I'm Sabia Khan. Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. 
Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts.